about to share an illustration that might be controversial a bit. Let me just say this first. This does not represent my own beliefs. We believe pretty strongly at this church, certainly for the pastor and the elders, that the pulpit is not a place to share my personal political convictions. Um, but it's very political season right now, right? It's Democratic presidential candidates debating, uh, winnowing down to a few candidates. I know I've brought that up a few times, but uh, the Green New Deal gets brought up quite often uh, in the midst of these conversations. And um, I don't know if you've ever read the Green New Deal, but I'm going to read you some of it right now, which uh, could be interesting. And I think regardless of your political background, that will be interesting because I think it's good to read it for yourself rather than judge it by whatever your preferred political pundit is. And so I'm going to read you a little bit, and you'll see why in a moment. It is an illustration for something, not just me proposing the Green New Deal to you. Um, but here's the beginning of the Green New Deal and, and uh, some resolutions along with it. I have a lot here. I'll decide how much I'll read. I don't know. You might not want to hear all 14 pages of it or whatever the number is, 45, I can't remember. Whereas the October 2018 report entitled Special Report on Global Warming by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the November 2018 Fourth National Climate Assessment Report found that, one, human activity is the dominant cause of observed climate change over the past century, two, a changing climate is causing sea levels to rise and an increase in wildfires, severe storms, droughts, and other extreme weather events that threaten human life, healthy communities, and critical infrastructure. Three, global warming, or at, uh, global warming at or above two degrees Celsius beyond pre-industrialized levels will cause, I'm not gonna read you the whole list, a bunch of bad stuff. And then, a little bit later, resolved, so this is the first resolution, resolved that it is the sense of the House of Representatives that one, it is the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal, A, to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transi transition for all communities and workers, B, to create millions of good high-wage jobs and ensure prosperity and economic security for all people of the United States, C, to invest in the infrastructure and industry of the United States to sustainably meet the challenges of 21st century. D, to secure for all people of the United States for generations to come. Uh, one, clean air and water. Two, climate and community resiliency. Three, healthy food. Four, access to nature. And five, a sustainable environment. Is that, did anyone fall asleep while I read from a resolution? Uh, some of you might have been yawning and wondering, why are we reading this? I uh, hope you didn't fall asleep. But maybe if you read the whole thing, it will feel a little bit like reading Leviticus, which is what we're preaching from today. And they do actually have something in common. Leviticus is in a category of uh, genre of, of, of literature called utopian literature. And it is very policy-oriented. It was written to Israel, who is both a nation and obviously a religion as well, rolled into one. And it was God speaking to Israel. Green New Deal is Congresswoman wrote it for Congress to approve for our nation. So it's a little bit different in that sense, but they really have very similar aims in that they are trying to describe what is the utopia that we are striving for? How are we gonna go about it as a nation and as individuals? And I think because it is maybe you're not a policy wonk, and so whether you're reading Leviticus or the Green New Deal, you might just be like, I can only get through one page and I'm done. Raise your hand if you felt that way when you read Leviticus, right? 
But we're preaching from a really important text in Leviticus that I feel like gives such rich background to Jesus' words, love your neighbor as yourself. And for us as a church, you know, if you don't know our, our vision statements, we are a gospel-centered people seeking Christ's formation in us and the flourishing of our neighbor. Uh, sometimes we shorten it as a tagline to say, becoming like Jesus Christ, seeking our neighbor's good. So this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is very much woven into a part of what we believe is important. And we're going to hear this very simple point today. Uh, and that is this, love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus is Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus is Lord. You've probably heard this message in that sense, the main point since you were in Sunday school. But here's the thing. It sounds very simple, but it is very divisive because we all have our tribe and our tribe defines loving very differently. You may not agree with the Green New Deal, but I don't actually doubt that they believe that this is the best thing for our nation. And in that sense, they think it is the most loving thing. And again, we can have so many differences on that level. And so what does it actually mean to love your neighbor? And I think Leviticus helps give us a, a better idea of what scripture means. So I have to give a little bit of context of Leviticus because again, it's, it's not, not an easy book to read. And in fact, some people find Leviticus offensive. If you manage to read through it, you might take offense at a lot of different places. But often the offense is taken because it is read out of context. And it is, it's, it's a surprising book really in the end because it reveals God's heart and God's wisdom. And it is funny in the sense and ironic because passages can be taken from Leviticus and be used politically by liberals and can be used politically by conservatives alike. And it's funny how such a controversial book can be used by such, for such different purposes. And I think what we see in that is that God's wisdom transcends humans' wisdom. God's wisdom is greater than any tribe's wisdom. And so again, as I said earlier, Leviticus is, a, is, is this genre of literature called utopian literature. And it's really trying to exhort Israel, God's people, to live holy lives. And it contains a lot of rules, a lot of laws, and there's in general three categories, civil laws, how to govern a nation, ceremonial laws, laws that define how to worship as God's people, and then moral laws, which are supposed to re reflect absolute sense of goodness uh, that's defined by God. And again, remember, Israel is religion and nation rolled into one, and you can't separate it for, for them. And really, the theme of Leviticus is this deeper unfolding of God's relationship with his people that was first put into law, so to speak, put into policy, put into rules to guide on Mount Sinai when God gave Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments and, and many other rules to go along with it to show this is what goodness is, God's people. And again, Leviticus is, is fleshing it out even more deeply what that relationship is supposed to look like. Now, there is an assumption when you read Leviticus, that humans, that Israel is sinful and impure, and that it describes how to deal with that sinfulness and impurity. Now, if, again, if you had, let's say you go home and you read the book of Leviticus, maybe uh, an initial feeling you might have is, this is tough to read. I don't know if I even agree with this general idea that humans 
are sinful and impure. I have a tough time with that. And I think, really, a lot, a lot of people in, in our culture today would say, I don't even like that label. I don't like this label of being called sinful, that humans are sinful. Aren't we beyond that already? And maybe you are feeling that right now. Like, I don't like to be called that. Maybe you're feeling that because you're here and you're wondering what this church is about. And maybe, but you're coming from an atheistic background. And it's like, ugh, I think that's gross to be called sinful. Or maybe you, you again, you're here and you're, you're seeking spiritually, but you have this assumption as a seeker that, you know, whatever faith we have, we are, we are already all right with God. That there is nothing that really separates us from relationship with God. There's no sin or impurity that keeps us from this God, this creator, this cosmic force that has created everything. Now, I point this out simply to say when you read Leviticus, and we're about, you know, you heard some of it read earlier. When you read Leviticus, that's going to be some, something that feels very strange and alien for us in a modern society. That's just not really how we talk about things. Even for those who have grown up in a Christian background, it's a little bit different. So some things to clarify how to read Leviticus and even just the brief passage we're reading today. Leviticus talks about these ritualistic states that we are in, and there's three categories, the unclean, the clean, and the holy. The unclean, the clean, and the holy. And here's the thing, because it sounds bad, right? When you say unclean, that sounds very derogatory. But the thing about clean or unclean is that it normally, or at least you can't necessarily imply that there is a hygiene judgment related to being clean or unclean. Really, a better analogy is to say whether you're registered to vote or you are not registered to vote. That is the kind of category that these ritualistic states are meant to be about. Yes, sometimes when we read some of these laws that have to do with being clean or unclean, you can deduce a hygiene rationale behind it, but there's not always a rationale behind it. The overall point really, of these categories of unclean, clean, and holy, is God trying to impress upon Israel all of your life needs to be devoted to God. All of your life is dependent upon God. And that the brokenness in your life actually impacts everything in your life. There is no area where it does not touch. And that was really this main message of these categories, again, of unclean, clean, and holy. And there was a way provided for that, the, that, that the, the separation between God because of our brokenness. There, were, there was a way to be made right with God, and there were these five main kinds of uh, offerings. Okay, maybe I, I'm beginning to lose you. I can feel it, but I'll move on quickly here. The five main types are burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. And that's all I'll say. There's five main types of offerings. And they kind of emphasize making things right with God in different ways. Now, here's the thing. Just again, one more note on reading Leviticus. People will often say, you can't trust the laws in Leviticus. They were written so long ago, and it even mentions you can't mix fabrics together. It will make you unclean. Now, I don't know. You want to look at your tag, how many of you are wearing clothing that has mixed fabric in it and would put you in the unclean category. But here's the thing again. It's a great soundbite, and if you already agree with that, it sounds very convincing. 
but it's not how you're supposed to read Leviticus. It's not the direct application. The book was written with a specific audience, a specific context, and for us as Christians, we have to extrapolate properly the application to our lives. In short, we'd say the civil laws, the ones that govern the nation, those don't exist anymore because it's not just about the nation of Israel anymore. It is a global faith. It transcends uh, one nation. The ceremonial laws that govern how Israel worshipped God have been completely fulfilled by Christ. And we don't need to make sacrifices anymore. So those also are done away with. And so the only ones left that we are to pay deep attention to are the moral laws that are supposed to be absolute and reflect God's definition of what is good and what brings life. We can still look at civil laws and ceremonial laws in Leviticus and say, what is God's heart there? What is God's principle there that we might draw from? Even the text we're looking at today are mostly moral laws with, with some laws that are in a different category, but we can extrapolate principles from it to apply to today. But it's not always easy to do that, and we have to do the hard work of it before we throw out some text from Leviticus to improve our political point that we're trying to make. There has to be proper work done to interpret how it applies for us today. All right, I'm going to dive in today. This section that we're looking at, Leviticus 19, is really very relational. It is about loving your neighbor. It is about how the Israelite community was meant to operate as a community, how to bring well-being to one another, and it really fleshes out what love looks like. And this is important, again, particularly for those who have grown up hearing, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the background for how we are to understand this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. That phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, is, if you didn't hear it earlier, it's in the text. So when Jesus uses this, he is quoting from Leviticus, right? And so I'm going to quickly go through these verses just to draw out some big ideas to give us an idea of what is this goodness and love that God points us to. So verses 9 through 10, the main idea is this. Love means generosity, not greed. Love means generosity, not greed. Verse 9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall, not, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In Israel's worship of God, God says, Don't be greedy. Don't harvest up to every little bit that you can. Leave a little bit behind for those who don't have so that they may come and pick from what's left and have food to eat, right? So there's mercy built into God's description of how they were meant to farm and harvest. And it's a beautiful thing. It is this challenge to the Israelites don't let greed become the thing that dominates your heart. Love means generosity. And, you know, we have a very great example in Scripture of this. If you know the book of Ruth, we see in the book of Ruth, Ruth is a, a, a woman who's lost her husband, who is with her mother-in-law, who's lost not only her husband, but also her two sons. She is, she is husbandless and sonless, and, you know, in those times it means she had no one to provide for her. And so Ruth goes to the fields of Boaz to glean from what 
was left behind to feed her and her, her mother-in-law, Naomi. So again, we, we, see, we see a very real example of those who were in need in the book of Ruth who were benefiting from the way that God had set the way they were to harvest. Okay, let's move on. Like I said, I'm going to do this relatively quickly. Verse 11 through 14, we'll see this idea, and it's kind of a lot of things together, but I think they're related. Love means no stealing, no lying, parenthesis, especially in God's name, no dehumanizing. Love means no stealing, no lying, especially in God's name, and no dehumanizing. It's fairly straightforward in some parts here. Again, it says don't steal, don't lie to one another, don't swear by God's name. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, which you could say is just, uh, it's expanding upon this, which is essentially one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. Expanding upon it, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Just pause for a moment. It's easy to pass over this. We do, some of us know people who live like this, but most of us, most of us don't. This is not even paycheck to paycheck. This is a day laborer who's living a day's wages at a time. He works all day. He gets his wage at the end of the day normally. And that's what he uses to feed himself and his family. And God says, don't even withhold one day's wage from someone like that. That's robbing him and oppressing him. And again, it's this beautiful Again, a very specific application of what does love look like? Love means when you know someone is so short on money, don't even withhold that money from them for a day. They need it to live, to live on. And it goes on to give what seems almost like an out-of-place example. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your Lord, I am the Lord. I love how it puts this together, right? So he's talking about caring for those who are deaf and who are blind, who are disadvantaged in that way. And its appeal is, remember you have a God. Remember you're not so high and mighty that you can take advantage of those who are deaf and blind. And I, I love the way it's put that you shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. At least the image that is conjured up in my mind is, imagine someone who is blind just walk by, and I literally just come and just go and then watch him fall and laugh at him. I mean, if this happened in front of you all, you would be mortified that someone would do such a thing. And yet, God very specifically says, don't do that. Don't take advantage of the deaf and the blind in any way. Love means no stealing, no lying, no dehumanizing. Verse 15 to 16, we get this idea that love means justice matters in and out of the court. Love means justice matters in and out of the court. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I think the, the, the comments about justice are fairly straightforward, but you could say even maybe challenging in our time and a lot of what our arguments politically end up being about. Some might say too much partiality is shown to the poor. Others would say they have had the short end of the stick too long and we need to help them. 
And God says, those are very fine arguments to have to make, but God says, what is most important in the end is that justice and righteousness defined by God prevails. How we apply that in specific situations, yes, is going to be arguments, but we shall not show partiality to the poor or defer to the great. And that helps us to remember that there's a tension. There's always a tension that we have to wrestle with in matters of justice. And again, it seems to expand it from inside the court specifically to out of the court to say, hey, even if you just go out and, go out and start slandering someone, that's an injustice that you're committing against them. It goes on to be even more specific because these are really quite relational. But verse 17 to 18, they're going to sound quite familiar. And again, it reminds us how much the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament. In these verses, we'll see we are to love rather than hate, reason with rather than bear grudge. Oh boy, do we need to hear that one today. Love rather than hate, reason with rather than bear grudge. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Just pause for a second. This is so tough. Do not hate your brother in your heart. It's not saying don't slap someone in the face, don't call someone a name. It says don't hate your brother in your heart. God's word, God's laws always call in the end for heart righteousness. Not just what looks good on the outside, not just what's acceptable in society, heart righteousness. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Simple question to you, to all of us. When you are hurt, when you are offended, do you reason frankly with the person who has hurt you? When you are hurt or offended, do you reason frankly with the person who has hurt or offended you? I imagine most of us get an F on that. It's just not our culture. We just don't want to deal with it. We want to rationalize it, justify in some way in our head, either to justify our own anger, go talk with someone and be like, yeah, so-and-so did this to me. Yeah, they're such a jerk. That feels good, right, when people agree with you about how much of a jerk someone else is? Or we might do the other thing, like, oh, you know, they probably didn't mean any harm, you know, it probably just was a misunderstanding, and we try to make peace in our own mind. But you notice how all of this does not involve the person who we feel offended by. We don't want to reason frankly with them because it's messy and we don't know how it's going to turn out and maybe it's going to make it worse. But Leviticus, God in Leviticus says, reason frankly. And he gives reasons for that. God says, maybe your hate will lead you to sin. Not only it would just be a hate in your heart, which actually is sin already, but not only be hate in your heart, but it will also lead to actions that hurt others. Don't take vengeance. Don't bear grudge. And this idea is very directly uh, affirmed by Paul and by Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Again, I've said this many times. It's not a sin to be angry. Scripture says, when you are angry, do not sin in your anger. 
Okay? Anger is just an emotion that reflects we feel hurt and offended. Okay? God says, when you feel hurt and offended, you feel angry, go reason frankly with the person who you feel hurt by. And Jesus, in fact, goes into much detail about how we are to go about doing that and puts this burden upon the person who feels hurt and offended to go reason frankly, to go try to make things right. That, that's counterintuitive to us, right? We think if someone hurt us, they should be the one who initiates and makes things right. But scripture says, if you feel hurt or offended, you go reason frankly with that person and see if things can be made right in your relationship. Jesus says, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Whenever that happens to us, we feel hurt or offended by someone. We understand that we should, we, we hopefully understand, go in with some uh, grace, recognizing maybe we did misunderstand someone's actions. So it's good counseling to say when you go to someone, I feel like, I feel hurt by what you did, but maybe you didn't mean it that way. Can we talk through this? Because I don't want this feeling to come between us, right? And that's what it is to reason frankly, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's with a friend, whether it's with a coworker, whether it was some random guy on the street who bumped into you, reason frankly with them. Verse 18, right, again, is this phrase that we've been trying to focus on, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, this is foundational to Jesus' teaching. Paul affirms it again in the book of James. James says this in verse two, eight, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 of James. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then you are doing well. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a challenging, challenging command. I did have us look at verse 33 to 34, because I think it's important, particularly for our time. And Maybe I'm pulling it out a little bit out of context here, but I think the command there is God says to us, love those outside of your tribe because we are outsiders too. Love those outside of your tribe because we are outsiders too. Verse 33 says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This verse has been quoted a lot in politics recently. And let me just say this. This does not determine immigration policy. But for us as Christians particularly, what it does determine is whatever our political view or policy we believe is right for immigration we are commanded to love those outside our tribe. So that's something we always have to evaluate in our hearts. Are we coming from a point of love? And God says, the reason is, you too are an outsider. And he references the Israelites being those who were in Egypt and were treated as were slaves, treated as slaves, treated poorly, and we recognize as Christians, we are, we've talked about this recently, we are not home. We too are in exile. God is preparing a better place for us. He's bringing heaven down to earth, and that has not yet happened. This is not our home. And if we approach immigration policy just recognizing we are not home either, 
How will that shape the way we talk about it, our posture towards it? And maybe it still leads to you having a, let's say, conservative immigration policy. But where is your heart in that? That's the challenge, right? So let's do application. That was, I was just trying to get a sense of the love fleshed out that is described in these passages. This section of Leviticus is, is been generally titled by most theologians as a calling to holiness, calling to holiness, which in fact is the whole book of Leviticus. But there's this very significant point in the book of Leviticus where they're being called to holiness in this way. And again, it contains actually mostly moral laws, as, as I said earlier, and it fleshes out for us, particularly modern ears, what love is to look like. Now, it was very different for Israel when they heard Jesus say, love your neighbor as yourself, because they would have heard it understanding all the Jewish laws. They would have understand the Old Testament laws, the laws in Leviticus, and they would have filled in the blank, so to speak, when they heard love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, all of the laws can be summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. When we hear that, we don't fill it in with all of the Old Testament laws. We don't know them that well. That's just, we just have not been raised with knowledge of Jewish laws. And that's you know, understandable, but we just, we, just don't, we just hear it very differently. And the purpose of Jesus saying it to the Israelite is, remember, you cannot save yourself. You need to be set free from this burden of feeling like you have to follow all of these laws written in Scripture in order to be made right with God. The whole system, sacrificial system, was in fact supposed to show them they couldn't do it. But the way it gets distorted in our brokenness is we think, okay, i got to follow all these laws. And for the Jewish hearer specifically, not only did they have the ones written in Scripture, they also added on, added on many, many, many more rules to figure out what does this mean for our context here? What does it mean? Okay, we live in a modern day now with you know, shops and you know, restaurants and elevators, and how, what does this mean for us? New laws keep get, getting added for, 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 for Jewish here. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to follow these perfectly in order to be saved. A way has been made for you to be made right with God. For us today, I think, and, and everyone's going to be different a little bit, I think we tend to hear it this way. When we hear love, you know, the two, the, the, all the commandments can be summarized with, with two, love God, love your neighbor. What we tend to hear is, oh, I need to have fuzzy feelings for God and for my neighbor. Like that's what we fill in because that's the culture of our time. That's what love means. But that's, of course, not what God means. God is saying he does have definitions for what is righteous, what is just, what is good. And we have to look to scripture to get a sense of what those are. And Leviticus 19, in its call for for, for humans to love their neighbor clearly shows that the follow of God has to be for the marginalized. It's just so in black and white to love those not like them. In very practical terms, God says, love the poor and the sojourner. Love the day laborer who's going paycheck by paycheck. Love the deaf and the blind. Love those who are not native to our land. 
The passage teaches us these biblical principles of love means generosity. Love means not dehumanizing. Love means not hating. Love means justice. Love means loving those outside of our tribe. But Leviticus 19 is not just talking about loving the marginalized. It's talking about what does love look like in God's people? What does a loving covenant community of God, how do they love one another? Whether rich or poor, partiality shouldn't be shown. Love as described of relating to each other in a loving way, being for one another, not slandering one another, not lying to one another, making things right with one another when hurt and offense is taken. And all that in order for us to be a witness to what God is doing in this world. Again, that was Israel's call from God, to be a light to all the nations around them, to show the goodness and love of God. And so it's not love for love's sake, it's love for the sake of showing that there is a God, that he is the true God, and he is the one in whom we find life and whom we are are restored into relationship and how we are redeemed from our own brokenness. And in a very, maybe not obvious way, again, because we're not Jewish, the gospel rings loud and clear in this Leviticus text. You probably heard it as I read it, as Jim read it, this phrase repeated, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And probably to our ears today, it just seems like God is trying to exert his authority over us. In fact, to the Jewish ear, it's not just God saying, I'm God, listen and obey. What would have rung in their ears is the words that God spoke before the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is the, what we call the preface to the Ten Commandments. And what it teaches us is that God has always worked through grace, not through our obedience. He says, I show you grace first. I will save you first because I love you. Now, do what pleases me as revealed in God's law. And that's what we hear here over and over again. In Leviticus, over 30 times this phrase is said. It was said again and again throughout these sections. I am the Lord your God, which we're supposed to fill in, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And for us as Christians, that points us, of course, to Christ's work, to the fact that he died on the cross for our brokenness, our sins, our separation from God. So it is God's new deal. That's what Christ is. It's the new covenant of Christ, saying this whole system of the sacrificial system, as described in Leviticus, all of these offerings, it's all done with. God's new deal says Christ has taken your wrongs and your sins upon the cross, has filled you with his perfect righteousness and considers you a son and daughter of God because of your faith in Christ. When we think about those five kinds of offerings I mentioned, um, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering, grain offering, and I missed one that I'm forgetting right now, burnt offering, each one of those emphasized something a little bit different. Burnt and grain offerings 
we're, we're sent up to God as a part of praise and petition to God. Peace offerings were made to emphasize our fellowship with God, our communion with God. Sin and guilt offerings were specifically to show our need for atonement of our wrongs. One, the sin offerings to show how we need to be purified from our brokenness, and guilt offerings were to show that there, there is a price that needs to be paid, that reparation needs to be made for those wrongs. That's what those offerings symbolized. And so for us, when we come to the Lord's table each Sunday, this table has so much more meaning when we understand, again, this is the background for Christ's sacrifice on the altar for our sins that his blood was shed. No longer do we sacrifice animals or grain or any of these things. But Christ's sacrifice brings us in fellowship with him. Christ's sacrifice enables our praise and petitions to be heard. Christ's sacrifice is what makes us right with God, is what purifies us in our relationship with God. It is what repays the wrongs that we have done. This is the table that does that. And this little phrase, I am the Lord your God, points us to the holiness of God, but also his provision for us to be made holy as he is holy, to be made right with him. There was a great cost for the Jewish believer. They would have to bring their own animals. They would have to buy their own offerings. When we come, when you come to this table, you don't have to bring anything. I don't take money when I offer you the bread and the wine. The only cost for us as believers is our pride, as our willingness to say, Lord, I can't do it myself. Lord, I am broken. Lord, I do need to receive your gift through Jesus Christ. That's it. All of the other cost is taken by Jesus and makes us right with God. And as the book of Hebrews says, the only sacrifice remaining for us is a sacrifice of praise. So I hope when we leave here today, that we remember we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that does mean being for the marginalized, but it also means loving all of those around us, those in our community, our church community, those we work with, those we go to school with, all people that we rub shoulders with, we are called to love. And we are called to love because we, have, we know that we've been first loved by God, that we've been loved as those who were deaf, who are blind, who are poor, who are sojourners and strangers in this world. That is the richness of which we celebrate at this table. And so I hope as you come to this table, you come as those who are hungry, who are needy, who are ready to receive freely from God the gift that he offers through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you call us to love our neighbor.